1 Corinthians chapter 10 for our text this morning. Um, we'll be looking at verses 23 and then through to the first verse of chapter 11. Let's, let's begin this way. Let me just read through the text. You can follow along and we can get kind of a broad scope of the um, passage we're going to look at and then we'll get into our study a little bit here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 beginning in uh, verse 23. Follow along as I lead us in reading. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the others, for why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I, by grace, be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat and drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Um, As we take a moment to understand each of the words, what the intent of this writing is, how to make application in our life is. 21st century Christians today at Calvary, Lord, I pray that you would guide our understanding, that you would provide understanding, that you would convict our hearts. Conviction is a good thing. We thank you for that, but I pray that we'd respond in obedience. Lord, we say this often, I pray that we wouldn't become uh, something that we take for granted when we say it, maybe from our hearts, when we say, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. Effective growth and change in the life of a Christian is one who is continually changing and growing. And so help us, Lord, to honestly evaluate our lives and, and to put into practice the things that we learn. Challenge our hearts, Lord, I ask, please, in Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through 1 Corinthians. If you wanted to think back, maybe you've taken some notes, you can look back at the passage in your Bible. And right in the beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul started a subject matter dealing with um, the, the meats that were offered to idols. This was going on in Corinth at the time, and so um, as the Christians there in Corinth were abusing their God-given right and ability to exercise liberty and living in grace, they were using that to the detriment of other people, to the detriment of the gospel of Christ and detriment and harm to others and hurting others. And so Paul writes in chapter 8, as we see it in our divisions and our English Bibles here, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, all the way through those chapters, Paul continually deals with this theme of idol meats. 
And it's very applicable for us. It's, it's, it's helpful to, for us as a church and as individuals. And Paul's not quite done with that. We're going to finish that major theme out this morning. And finishing out, there are some questions that are raised that revisit some similar questions that we looked at in chapter 8. So some of this might be, in, by way of introduction, be a little bit familiar to you more than maybe usual. Questions that might be asked is, are there any guidelines to help Christians in the way of deciding whether or not it is right or it is wrong in the area and the matters of questionable, doubtful, and indifferent things in our lives? Categorically, some things Christians would list, possibly list, as indifferent, maybe, and here's a list of just some common things amongst Christians. Some things that they, they, Christians made list as being indifferent, saying, well, it's kind of a gray area, the Bible's not very clear on it. Things like movies and TV and alcohol and tobacco and card playing and clothing and jewelry and tattoos and music and dancing and, and a host of other man-made taboos concerning rights and wrongs in the Christian life and activities. Some of us understand are, are much more of a buzzword, hot topic items today. Some may have a superior understanding of what, may, what you believe the scriptures teach on that. You've developed convictions concerning some things. The list is not to be all-encompassing. The list is not to be a, an ABC123 only, but it gets us thinking of these different areas. You know, there are several passages in the scriptures, in the New Testament particularly. There's several scrap, uh, passages, three primary passages in the New Testament that speak of and provide guidelines for determining what is right or wrong in the area of questionable practices. How do we proceed on whether or not we should do or not do, consume or not consume, participate, not participate, so on and so forth. You know the passages. The first one would be, that, that I'd point your attention to, would be 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We studied that together, and in fact, I would encourage you to not only maybe revisit the introductory message made available on the website for 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there were some guidelines there provided, I'll review some of those a little bit later, but also the message last week. So the last two weeks leading up to now, it'd be good to maybe go back and hear those if you missed them. Get a copy from the sound guys, and, and, and this is not for any reason of myself or any benefit that way, but just that so you can have a fluid understanding of the text we're studying here. I think it'd be really helpful, Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 10 would be the very next passage. This is what we're looking at now, particularly our, our text here, verse 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. And then in Romans 14, Romans chapter 1, those are the three major texts in the New Testament that deal with the matters of questionable practices. What should we do or not do? So by way of review a little bit, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, the first 13 verses, the Apostle Paul dealt with the matter of questionable practices as they related to a Christian's testimony, a witness, before a weaker brother or sister in Christ. Okay, So he was teaching that we should consider carefully and prayerfully what we do and participate in, even in the areas we're given liberty to participate in, through the eyes of, could this be damaging and hurtful to a brand new believer or someone who is maybe not as strong in Christ yet to understand the liberties and how these things work out? Be mindful of other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in that text, he really concluded, and the point that he gave was in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, is that a Christian had the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as it did not cause another Christian to stumble or to fall. 
So the stronger Christian should exercise love and set aside the practice for the sake of other Christians. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the passage we're looking at now, Paul is talking about questionable practices again. Our flesh likes to get ahead of us, doesn't it? We like to do what we like to do. And I think our human nature is pretty good at trying to come up with defenses and, and ways to rationalize our participation. The, Corinth, the, Corinthian, the Christians in Corinth were exceptionally good at this right now because Paul's writing them and saying, hey, you're, you're flaunting your liberty as an as, as, as a excuse to just do whatever you wanted to do. And there are a lot of things you can do under Christian liberty, but it's not helpful to others. And here are the reasons why. So this is Paul giving these things. So in this passage, he's talking about these questionable practices again. And the issue in Corinth is that was the eating of meat, uh, eating of the meat that was offered to idols, um, that it may be seen as a participation in the idolatry. So this is where it'd be helpful to go back and listen to, to, to last week's message to make sure you, you're understanding this as a flow because the, the, the last three, well, the last two and, the, and then today kind of fit very well together. It's in the same vein of thought, the same context. And last week particularly, it was, hey, don't, don't spend all the time in, in um, don't, don't be visiting these pagan idolatry, idolatrous um, feasts and festivals because it gives the appearance that you're worshiping with them. Participation is in fact, worshiping with them. So he says, be careful of this. And, you know, there are three primary, primarily three ways that Christians handle the subject of ethics and morals and um, liberty and love and those kind of things in this category. I think it's helpful, um, and, and, and maybe you would categorize it differently. I think it's helpful to consider this way. Um, the three categories. The first would be legalism. That's one way that Christians seek to handle the areas of questionable practices. Let's just be extra legalistic to be careful would be the idea. So the legalist would say things like all of life is to be governed by law. There is a yes, a no, a black and white to everything in life. That's what the legalist would say. And he, he or she would typically um, not think, evaluate, or pray about making a decision about something. They would just immediately go back to a law, whether it was man-made or biblical. Then there's another category, and that would be liberalism. That'd be the opposite end of the spectrum from legalism, and that would be the, the approach where the libertine believes in total freedom in all areas and all things. Okay, two extremes here. The, the libertine believes in this complete freedom, and he typically detests law and restraint and often practices situational ethics. That would be the idea of whether something was right or wrong in a circumstantial sort of way. It might be right or wrong in this context and not in that context and so on and so forth. Kind of as a license of what, what fits my desire. And then there's a third category. And I would hope and pray that we would as, as, as a church, fall into this category. And that would be a biblical category. <laughs> I think a biblical category and a way to handle things is where the biblicist has a balanced view of law and liberty. And it takes some work. It takes some, some, some thinking, some studying of God's Word. It takes maturity to, to, to arrive at, I think, a biblical Perspective, and I believe Scripture and Paul helps us get there, and we're going to see that. A, a biblicist would, would accept law, understand that there is God's laws that are clear that should not be broken, while at the very same time understanding that God has given, in His grace, we have liberty. That there is liberty in 
questionable areas. And there's things like a conscience, and there's developed convictions from studying God's Word, and, 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 and uh, we need to work on developing those things. So the decision of whether or not a Christian participates in a questionable area must be regulated, here it is, by the superior principle of love. That's the title of our study this morning, the superior principle of love. So in light of considering all these things, you've got these different camps, you've got the legalists, you've got the, the libertine, you've got the uh, a biblicist, and maybe that's an over, oversimplified um, category of different approaches to all this. Let's look at what the Bible says, how we are to approach making judgment calls and decisions on things that are those gray area questionable practices. Okay? We're going to see how the way in which we regulate the outcome of those decisions should always be regulated by the principle, the superior principle of love. Love asks things like this, will this practice harm my testimony or will it glorify God? The superior principle for the Christian is that of love. And so out of love, the Christian sets aside his or her, sets aside his or her rights and liberties for the sake of other Christians and his testimony to the unsaved world. See how when love leads, there's consideration for others. This is what Paul, this is what God wants us to understand. So firstly this morning, look with me in verses 23 and 24. We've read them, so I'll let you look at those verses as I address them and seek to try and give some understanding. We see, number one, the Christian's mode of operation is governed by love. A Christian's mode of operation should be governed by love. So verse 23 says, that what Paul is saying here in verse 23, all things are lawful for me. He's saying all things are permissible, all things are allowable, they are legal, but not everything is beneficial or helpful. All things may be allowable and legal, but it may not be beneficial or helpful. So as New Testament Christians, under grace and not Strictly the Mosaic law in the Old Testament alone, all forms of food are lawful, are legal to the Corinthians, is what Paul is writing to him, speaking specifically of the idol meat, the meat that was offered to satanic idolatry, um, pagan worship. He says, all these things were, were, were legal, they're lawful, you can eat these things. However, the very same food that is lawful may indeed cause problems for other people. For other Christians and even for the unsaved world, it may cause problems in our testimony and our relationship to the world in being a testimony of Christ. So you see, the question is not whether some things are inherently harmful for the Christian or not to do. Why? Because if it was harmful, then it would be sin. If there's some, something that is harmful to our bodies, it's harmful to our testimony, it's very clearly sin. We understand that. We're talking about the areas where we go, I, I don't know if it's really harmful. Liberty allows us to do this thing. And so then our mind goes here, and we understand that Paul is telling us, hey, all things are lawful, so ease your conscience that way. But be mindful that we need to be mature enough and prayer, praying up enough and loving enough that we set aside some things that are lawful for the sake of others, for the sake of the, the witness and the testimony of the gospel. Whether they are profitable is what we are to consider. So we shouldn't be asking things alone like, 
will it hurt me? Well, if it won't, then there we go. Figured that one out. Answered my question. No, we should probably ask a little bit more um, pointedly, will it benefit? Will it edify? Will it profit me and others? See, it's a wonderful thing for a Christian to not be bound by legalism. Amen? It truly is. We're like, I don't know. Is that a trick question? Yes, it's a wonderful thing to not be bound by legalism. It's a wonderful thing to not be living under the law. But our freedom comes with a tremendous responsibility not to abuse that freedom, but to use it rather as an opportunity to set aside maybe a practice or several for the purpose of benefiting others, for the purpose of not hindering the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the purpose of not putting a black eye on Christianity with our practice and things that may be, and even sometimes incorrectly may be perceived as worldly practice. The superior principle of love not only asks whether the crash, questionable practice builds, um, uh, builds myself up, but also whether the questionable practice builds up others. Oh, dear Christian, the decisions in life on the do's and don't is not only impacting you. Parents, you know this. We know this. Our decisions that we make in a household as a family does not impact me alone. My children are watching. My wife is observing, oh, so carefully, as she reminds me. The world is watching. The church is watching. Decisions ought to be made with giving thought in love to how it impacts others. So then we get to verse 24. He says, Let no man seek his own, but every man his own wealth. Nobody, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. That's a pretty common, well-known Christian theme, isn't it? Principle. We're to be seeking the wealth of others, or to be lifting up others. Go and study Philippians chapter 2. See the example of Christ and how we are to serve each other, to love each other. That is, each Christian must seek to promote the best interest of other people, not seeking to selfishly promote my own agenda, my own intention or interest. Is this your mode of operation as a Christian? To, to exercise love and consideration of others in your decision-making process? Can others see your love? Can others, can the world see, can Christians see a concern for them and for others? A theologian once said it this way, I quote, A Christian may do away with all questionable practices without danger to himself or others. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. Listen to this. A Christian may do away with all questionable practices without danger to himself or others, but he cannot indulge in them without offending at least someone else. Consider that. Paul is not teaching that we need to orient 
every activity and every decision around every whim of anyone and everyone else alone, but rather we have a responsibility to all men and women to use our liberty wisely as it is guided and governed by the superior principle of love. That's what Paul telling us this is what God wants of us. Christians, we should be asking, how can I let lo- love govern my life in such a way that it is the best possible testimony to the lost world? That's what we should be asking ourselves. That should be the self-examining question. So rightly oriented love and concern for others helps to govern our liberty and brings glory to God. Secondly, the Christian's understanding of liberty is defined by love. Seeking to have a right, correct understanding of our Christian liberty is defined by love. You, you can't do away with love. You have to understand it to understand it correctly. You must consider love. So verses 25 and 26, as we continue, Paul continues to write. We read them together. Let me remind you. Whosoever, look at it. Whosoever is sold in, or excuse me, whatsoever (laughs) is sold in the shambles that eat. Asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Let me help you out a little bit. I'm I'm reading from the the King James here, the shambles. And the shambles has the understanding of, of, of a meat market. You know, the, the, the discount meat market store, so to speak, right? This is what the idea here is. Whatever's sold in the, in the marketplace here. So Paul is saying, eat meat from the market without raising questions of conscience. Don't go around poking and prodding and asking so many questions that your conscience is so ouchy and sore that you can't even do anything in life. By the way, this is not a, a, a teaching of let's just lay on willful ignorance here. You know, intentional ignorance. Well, I just don't know what I'm doing here, right? Oh, look at me, liberty. No, it's this idea of do not go and poke and prod and ask so many questions in the regular areas in life. It's kind of like this. You go around and start asking questions about all the stores and all the owners and all the places we give our money to, and pretty soon you're going to find out that as a Christian, in my conscience, I can't give my money to anybody because I'm supporting something I don't agree with somewhere, somehow. I think there needs to be a balance there. And that balance and that decision needs to come from studying Scripture and prayerfully making that individual decision yourself. But this is the idea that Paul is getting at here. He says, now, in some cases, it was common in Corinth for surplus meat from pagan temples to be sold wholesale at, um, um, at the local merchant, right? The local butcher shop. Maybe even outside the temple, on the backside in the street. And, and in this case... Paul is advising the Corinthians, Christians, to go ahead and buy the meat. But when you do, don't ask the butcher, where did this meat come from? Where where was it 24 hours ago? Did did it come from the temple over there? Well, of course it did. I sold it at this. Oh, I can't do it anymore. And pretty soon meat's out the diet for your family, and you lose your loss of protein in that way, right? In this case, Paul is advising them, go ahead, buy the meat without asking where it came from. Take it home and eat it. Enjoy it in your home. In verse 26 here, then he again quotes, again to remind us, he does this numerous times from Psalm 24.1, and he reminds us that all things, that the meat came from the Lord in the first place. 
Don't allow the, 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 the um, dedication of it to the pagan temple and being offered to the pagan false god deter you from enjoying what God has created for you anyway. Think with me for a minute about something. Let's hypothesize a little bit here. Let's say that we're all together as a church like you're going to be at the church picnic on Saturday, right? Okay. You're going to bring your friends, you're going to bring your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, because it's going to be an easy way to bring them with you and come and hear the gospel and play some fun games, enjoy some food and fellowship, putting to practice, offering a way for us to be evangelistic. Anyway, side note, we're at the picnic together, right? And here comes some guy. We don't know who he is, and he comes walking over, and he's holding a beer in his hand, and, and he comes up, and he starts talking to us and strikes up a conversation, and some When is he drunk? I don't know. Is he going to say something he shouldn't? I don't know. And we strike up a conversation with him. Should we all tell him, you know, you should leave? There's a lot of us here that don't do that. This is a church picnic. And we get on our soap stool and we start preaching at him of, of all the dangers of alcoholism. And so on. No. The Apostle Paul's teaching something completely different. He's saying, receive him, speak to him, understand, look for patiently an opportunity to share Christ, which is the first and foremost thing he needs. Amen? Now, if this gentleman comes up and says, here, here's another one, and opens it up, hands it to us, and hey, we need to say, hey, you know what, thanks. You know, I prefer not to do that. Okay? This is my conviction, not to do that. But we're not going to soap stool and scare him off and run him off. In these ways. This is maybe just a, a real world application. You could think of others and how we might do these things. You see, I understand and I don't believe Paul is saying to the Christians, separate yourselves from anything and everything that has to do with the pagan temple. Or we may never be able to leave our houses. Right? Paul is, is, is giving us a certain measure of kind of wake up and smell the coffee here, folks. Let's understand that we live in a very real world, a very sinful world, and we're not to adapt these practices in order to blend in. No, he's not saying that either. He's saying you, you, you have the ability to think through this, follow my teaching here. Nor is he saying that we not only are supposed to separate from the world in any way that's, that's pagan whatsoever, never be in the presence of it. He's not saying that we are to cut off relationships with all people who still practice idolatry or we, never, we lose all opportunities to be a gospel witness, right? Christians, we are not called to isolate ourselves from an unsaved world, but we are called to be different from the world and not partake in the idolatry of the world. Rather, we are to be ready to actively apply biblical principles that will help in the decision-making process when the right decision isn't obvious. Oh, Christians, you need to be intentional. We've got to be intentional. You can't wait for these situations to come up. And, ah, I don't know what to do here. Ah, I'm nervous. Should I do? Not do? Ah. We can be prayed up, prepared, and biblically studied to be best ready to handle these type of situations in a right way, to respond to them in a biblical way. Let me remind you of a list very quickly of what I shared with you that I have found helpful and adapted and had preached when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Very quickly, here's a list of reminders of, of principles in which to employ when making a decision. Principles to making decisions about questionable things. Number one, the principle of excess. Do I need it? 
That's principle number one. Principle number two, expedience. Is it going to help me? Is doing such and such, going wherever, is it going to help me? The principle of emulation. Is it what Jesus would do? Can I picture Christ doing this thing? Would we see an example of Christ doing this very act? The principle of evangelism. Does it enhance my testimony? Does this participation, does this activity enhance my testimony? Edification, the principle there would be, would it build me up? Does it edify? That's the idea of edifying, building somebody up. Does it edify me? Will it edify others as well? Another principle is the principle of exaltation. Will it exalt Christ? I think going through a list like this really narrows down the question of participation when we consider these biblical principles. Then there was a principle of, of example. Will this be a loving, righteous example to others? I encourage you to, to, to consider these principles when considering questionable areas, areas that the Scripture doesn't seem to be as clear on, or maybe there's God-intended allowance for liberty in certain areas. Consider these things. So listen, secondly, this morning, we understand that rightly understood liberty is defined by love. It is rightly practiced when it is defined by love, and it brings glory to God. Our Christian liberty can bring glory to God when we rightly understand it through the lens of the superior principle of love. But thirdly, this morning, the Christian's testimony is guided by love. Your testimony, your Christian testimony, my Christian testimony, should be guided by love. So look at verse 27. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Paul is saying, by the way, this is not a license to break your diet. You're like, yes! Paul says I can eat whatever at any time. Woohoo! Yeah, you can deal with that between whoever you're doing that with and the Lord. Paul is rather saying here, verse 27, Paul is saying that as a guest, as guests of someone who has prepared a meal for you, this is in the context, even those principles we can glean, this is in the context of the Corinthians who were saved out of idolatry in a pagan culture where pagan neighbors might invite them over for a meal or a celebration, and they come over and they begin to serve the idol meats, and the Christians are like, oh, what should I do? Should I ask where that meat come from? Is it from the marketplace? Was it from the field? Where did it come from? Paul gives him instruction here, and he says, you should eat whatever they lay before you without asking any questions. Don't bring up things that are, cause your conscience to be violated. Just eat what the Lord has provided. You know the meat didn't come from anywhere else but the Lord. He gave it to you. Eat it. Don't ask questions. Keep your mouth shut except for eating the meat, right? This is really what Paul is saying here. And, and he says, don't make an issue out of these things. If the unbeliever serves meat that had been offered to idols, the Christian was not to ask questions as to where it came from. So why not make an issue out of the meat? Why not? Why should we not make an issue out of the meat? Because the unsaved desperately need the Lord, and we cannot be an effective witness when we are bogged down with a senseless myriad of questionable things that we're constantly digging into that are causing a stumbling block for those we are trying to firstly be a witness to. You'll remember Jesus didn't do what the world did, did he? He was perfect. 
He was sinless. He didn't do what the world did, but he moved among worldly people. And by the way, for that, from the Pharisees, he was blamed for being worldly. Verse 28 reminds us that, that now, on the other hand, if someone at the dinner table announces that the dinner meat was offered to idols the day before, he has raised the question, not you, and so for your testimony's sake and for his conscience' sake, you are to kindly refuse what has been offered. So you're, there you are, Sunday afternoon, your neighbors invite you over, they're unsaved, they serve you a meal, and... Picture yourself in Corinth here for the sake. I don't know that all of your neighbors are offering meats to idols on a regular basis in this culture. But picture there, you're a Corinthian, you're sitting at the table, and they offer the meat, and you get ready to jump in. You're like, oh, I love liberty. Here we go. Here's my pork chop. And you're ready to jump in. And they go, oh, by the way, it was offered to the idols the night before. Ah, oh, so ready for that pork chop. Why is that a big deal? Because in some cases, the pagan, idolatrous, lost people in that culture knew that you, being born again and saved out of idolatry, was trying to separate from that, and it very likely may be a test on how wholeheartedly you are a follower of Christ. And for that sake, Paul is teaching, I believe, to kindly say, you know, thank you so much, it looks delicious, I'll have some salad, you know, or whatever, you know, else is on the table. You bring a Snickers or something, right? I don't know. Do you get the principle here that Paul is trying to teach? To not make an issue that is going to prevent you from having a right testimony or prevent you from sharing Christ, which is the first and foremost thing that that neighbor, that individual, that unsaved person needs. Because the Christian, because we love Christ more than the Salisbury steak before us, we don't need to eat it in order to maintain a testimony. I'm not telling you don't eat Salisbury steak, whatever. But should our love be greater for Christ than our temporal liberty? Yes. Yes, our love for Christ and our testimony should be superior than the liberty that God has allowed us to be used carefully. Verses 29 and 30, we're fastly approaching the end here. Hang with me. Hang with me. I know we're talking about food. <laughs> we'll let you go here in a minute. Verses 29 and 30, Paul is saying here that, that he will not exercise liberty if that liberty is going to be judged by another. The principle here is this. Rather than letting an unsaved person potentially incorrectly judge your conscience, it is better to set aside the questionable practice altogether and prevent the, 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 the wrong interpretation of our practice. I give you countless examples of this and I don't want to cloud thinking on a rather potentially contentious discussion about liberty. But maybe the Lord is bringing to mind right now into your heart practices where you go, you know, I can do this, it's no big deal. But there are plenty of people in the world that may not understand that that is not a big deal. And so it is better for the cause of Christ to maybe set aside that practice. When we do that, we are demonstrating the superior principle love for Christ and his people for the lost you could cross reference you might note this down in your margin 
In your notes, Romans chapter 14 and verse 6. Helpful text on this. Remember, that was one of the three major texts in the New Testament dealing with this. Romans 14 and verse 6. Better to set aside questionable practices than cause somebody else to stumble. So the issue here is ultimately love's wisdom, which builds up others rather than selfish insistence of rights which can work to destroy others. Lastly, verse 31, and then I believe really the flow is into verse 1 of chapter 11. It goes very well here. Okay, Chapter divisions, I don't believe, are inspired. But we look at them here and we see, so we got to finish out. And uh, verse 31, um, and then all the way down to verse 1 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, and that is this, the Christian's motivation is to be driven by Christ-like love. Notice the redundant, repetitive theme of love this morning. Love guiding these things. So very quick, look at verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Oh, the superior principle of love here. Although the issue of meat sacrificed to idols is no longer a common uh, problem <laughs> in the modern Western world, at least here in Mesa, right, in Arizona. There certainly are numerous activities which are questionable. There are all sorts of questionable. Some of the most common, debated, questionable practices would be movies, TV, alcohol, tobacco, card playing, clothing, jewelry, tattoos, dancing, music, etc., 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 on down the line. You can fill in the blank. Those are not the, the only and maybe not all. But the principle here for you and me is if it can't be done to the glory of God, maybe note this down, if it can't be done to the glory of God, then it shouldn't be done at all. That's our principle. That's a biblical principle. That is God's principle for all activities in our lives and decisions. If it can't be done for the glory of God, it shouldn't be done at all. And as we consider this principle, Paul continues to write in verse 32, and he, he articulates it, and he teaches us, he says, he's teaching us that the Christian is to live a life which brings the least offense to the unsaved and to the saved. This is our endeavor. This is what is to motivate our decisions. What can I do that is the least offense to the presentation of the gospel? So in verse 33 now, in other words, Paul lived his life not seeking his own interest, but seeking the interest of those around him in order that they might get saved. Notice the, 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 uh, the particular interest here. Not just seeking whatever whim and interest is, entertains them or whatever satisfies their hobbies and interests and activities, but the interest of them and their best interest, whether they know it or not, it is in their best interest that they come to know Jesus Christ, their Savior. Amen? So this is his superior principle. This is what motivates him out of love for them. So when a Christian's motivation is driven by Christ-like love, it will regulate their conduct. It will regulate your activity in questionable practices, and it will affect how we dress, it will affect how we talk, it will affect how we consume food and beverage, it will affect our lifestyle, it will affect our entertainment, it will affect our interaction with the world. These things will be affected when we rightly understand that our motivation is to be driven by Christ's 
like love. Then in verse 11, he sets a superior example. We end with this. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Christians, we are commanded to follow Paul's example. Why? Because God's word says it, but his example can be followed because Paul's example was one of following Christ's example. Christ is and always will be the supreme example for us to follow in our lives. Set aside, he set aside all of his rights. He set aside all of his, uh, um, his rights and his place in heaven to come to earth as the God-man to die for sinful man who is rebellious and against him and God. That's me. That was you. That's the world, that's mankind. Set aside all of his liberties as the God made to die for sinful men and women so that they might be saved. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of love and concern for others. So when you consider questionable practices, when we begin to struggle with the do's and the don'ts of our Christian liberty, we need to look to Christ. We need to consider the superior principle of love and seek the best interests, which is the gospel for those around us, saved and unsaved. So we end with this. We're closing our Bibles. We're getting ready to pray. We're getting ready to leave. Maybe you're in here this morning. You don't know Christ as your personal Savior. You've been hearing about a Christ-like example. You've been hearing about Christian love. You've been hearing about the principle of love. If you're not a Christian, I do want you to fully understand what a true Christian is this morning. I want you to clearly understand what defines a Christian. Uh, let, me, let me tell you this. As a Christian, I'll tell you about myself. I, I'm a sinner saved by grace. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you know that too. And you can say the same thing. You are a sinner saved by the grace of God who has I, I, I'm one that, the, that God has convicted and led in my life and revealed to me that I'm a sinner and I am, it was in need of repenting of my sin, agreeing with God of my sinful life and my sinful actions and my inability to do anything about that apart from Him. As I understand, and the Scriptures were shown to me many years ago, I trusted in faith that God sent His Son to die for my sin placing my complete faith and trust in Him that I was born again and possess eternal life. You see, a Christian is not made up of someone who does or doesn't do a bunch of things. That violates God's Word in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, as well as other places. Do you hear that, Christians, this morning? A, a Christian is not made up of somebody that just sets them apart from a bunch of things. Christian is somebody who's born again, and the more we come to know Christ as our true, only Savior and His love and how we are to demonstrate and live the example of Christ in our lives, we begin to find out that there are many things we can do without to demonstrate love to others. The superior principle of love governs what we do. It defines our liberty 
It guides our testimony and it drives our motivation to glorify God. Will you bow your heads with me this morning as we pray? Father in heaven, we've handled and, and, and looked through your word this morning and I pray it was done rightly and correctly. I believe it was. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts this morning. Lord, there may be Christians here in this room you know and you see every one of our hearts. There may be Christians in this room that, that maybe have been convicted and been reminded of things in their life that need to be set aside. Maybe there needs to be a more intentional, prayerful, biblical thought process in the decisions and activities that we do. Lord, I pray that people here, this church, would seek to, to um, uh, implement the superior principle of love in our decision-making process in our lives. May your love truly transform our lives so that we are rightly seen as a different person, not by outward conformity, but by an inward change in our heart. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you for choosing us, for saving us. Lord, for those here this morning, if there's anyone that is not absolutely, clearly certain that if they were to die today, they would be in heaven, that they would seek someone out, that they would turn to scriptures so they might be shown in a loving way how they can be sure. Thank you for your word this morning. Continue to do a mighty work in our hearts. Grow and strengthen this church that we might be a light in this community, in this oh-so-lost world. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.